Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We recently begun a new sermon series entitled Christ and Culture, the 2017 edition, in which we are examining a variety of important and pressing cultural themes and ideas and philosophies. And we will be doing that through a framework that Eric and I are currently uh, constructing and thinking a lot about. So the first three uh, sermons in this series have to do with this framework. Framework is simple, a creation, fall, and redemption. Three words that you may know and know well. Uh, but I think if we begin within this framework, we'll have uh, more credibility and biblical awareness as we examine various uh, forces and ideas in Western American culture. Uh, the purpose of this series is to destigmatize our vision so that we can see with the perception of Christ, and also that our hearts would grow larger than they currently are so that we would love the world that God so loves. Tonight, I'm talking about sin. So it's going to be a little heavy, but I promise there will be lift toward the end. I was 21 years old when I had my aspirancy interview. An aspirancy interview has to do with people who are interested in being ordained, who aspire to be ordained. Uh, I was interested in ordination, but terrified at the thought of meeting Robert Duncan, our then bishop meeting him for the first time and having him interview me. Uh, I was led into his office by a secretary who had me sit down in a very lovely uh, chair that looked like it cost $8,000, sat in a beautiful office surrounded by many books and uh, a very large and oddly organized desk. I sat there alone wondering when he would arrive. Eventually, he, he did, after a nerve-wracking amount of time. He was wearing a, a, a purple cassock down to his feet, had a large pectoral cross around his neck, and, of course, those eyebrows, right? And, the, and, and, uh, and, he, and he came into the room and sat diagonally from me, and after some casual conversation, he asked me a very pointed question and looked at me with seriousness as he asked the question. Just one question. Ethan, are you a good person? Not an unimportant question. <laughs> a key question in some ways. I will not yet tell you how I answered said question. That comes later. But it's a key question about the nature of human nature. Are you a good person? How would the poet Thoreau have responded to Bob Duncan? Thoreau would say, 
Of course I am. And now I shall quote him. We are born innocent. We are only corrupted by bad advice. How would Aristotle have responded to Bob Duncan? He would say, it's complex. I'm neither good nor bad. I am a blank slate. And by my decisions, I write my life on this blank slate. And you can deduce the worth of a life after it is lived. How would St. Paul respond to Robert Duncan? Well, he responds, if you will, in Romans chapter 3, where he offers an alternative perspective, uh, one that is largely unwelcomed guest in human discourse. St. Paul's conclusion is that the human condition is morally and obstinately flawed beyond self-repair. To put it plainly. Uh, St. Paul believes that we are in a trench. A trench that is broad and deep and objectively true. And I'd like to walk through this passage with you and see if we can gain a little insight about our lives from St. Paul's dark understanding of the human condition. This trench is broad, broad enough to engulf the entirety of the human race. Paul begins by asking and then answering a question. He does this a lot in his letters. He begins by asking, are we Jews any better off? You may know that St. Paul was a member of the Jewish community. And he says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, for Paul, the world, until Christ had died, risen again, was divided into two groups. Jews, who understood themselves to be chosen by God, descendants of the patriarch Abraham, and Gentiles, sometimes called Greeks, who represented pretty much everyone else, whether you were a Brazilian or Japanese or Nigerian or from the Sudan, you were a Gentile. And that means you were not chosen by God in the same way. Two groups. The idea that St. Paul has communicated so far in Romans is that Jews, to some extent, had certain advantages. They were given, unlike the early Aztec community, the Old Testament revelation. They were given the law, the writings, and the prophets, and no one else had those advantages. But Paul's point here is that neither group adhered to the standard. Neither group attached to either the revelation that they had or the revelation of which they were ignorant. Neither of them embraced the enlightened path. And therefore, uh, Paul concludes that all Jews and Greeks or Gentiles all are under sin. Now, what is sin? Sin is not uh, an occasional misstep. It is not a whoopsie. It is not, I'll do better next time. It is not accidental. Uh, sin is, if I were to put my own spin, which I think is biblical on it, sin is the compulsion to both believe and to act as if we are God. 
Uh, it is to exalt the self so significantly that we harm others around us and eventually harm ourselves. This is the understanding that goes back to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve did not commit some lowly sin of the flesh, but instead wished to embrace divinity. They wished to be deified. They wished not to stand before the throne, but to occupy the throne of history. Uh, this compulsion to, to uh, dominate life, to control all those around us, uh, leads to, in all circumstances, uh, what Megadeth called a symphony of destruction, <laughs> from which there is no return, save from an external source of help. Paul says that we are under sin. Note our position there, under sin. Sin is, for Paul, taller than we are, higher than we are. Sin is something like the horizon. Sometimes St. Paul uses the language that we are under the dominion of sin, understanding sin to be sort of a superstructure, a kingdom, an authority that is bigger than we are. I have a friend who grew up in South Africa. As a black African living under apartheid in South Africa, it was not a pleasant existence. My friend uh, used to say that apartheid didn't just affect where we lived, the cities in which it was permissible to live, or the side of the city in which it was permissible to live. Apartheid affected everything. It affected your friendships. It affected where you went to the grocery store. It affected the restaurants you went to. It affected the kind of food that you ate. He said it was as if apartheid was in the breakfast cereal we were eating. That's sort of like sin. It's this superstructure above us that has a great deal of authority and power. We are under sin. And that's odd. It sounds odd to me because I normally think of sin being something under me or under my control. That sin is an occasional misstep that I make or a feeling that I shouldn't have felt or a thought I shouldn't have had or an action that I shouldn't have taken. But Paul sees it differently. He sees sin as something that is over us, something that has dominion, power, control over us. Uh, and therefore, sin, at least in the ultimate sense, is not an action or a decision, but a condition, a condition under which we live and move and lose our being. If this is our place, that we are under sin, and that all of us are under sin, we're in a load of trouble. And Paul details what that trouble looks like. Note his disturbingly comprehensive language. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then later in verse 19, he says, the whole world will be accountable to God. And for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. He's not inventing these sayings to be uh, extremely pessimistic. Instead, what he's doing is going back to the Old Testament Psalms and collecting a variety of psalms that, in their original context, spoke to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, that were under the judgment of God. And now Paul is stringing these dark pearls together to form this necklace that he puts on everybody's neck. 
And he says that this is true not just of Gentiles, but of Jews as well, of everybody. No one passes the test, and that the human condition is evenly distributed. Paul annoyingly prevents us from a rather satisfying and cathartic blame game. I always want to think of the human problem as out there, at least principally out there. Yes, on occasion, I make a mistake in my understanding of a situation or have a lapse of judgment. On occasion, don't we all? But really, it's ISIS, you know. I mean, it's North Korea. Definitely North Korea. It's the looters in Florida, uh, the illegal immigrants in this country. It's the gay people. Or it's the heteronormative people. That's a phrase now. Did you know that? Uh, It's the Black Lives Matter people. It's the Blue Lives Matter people. It's the evangelicals. It's the post-evangelicals. It's the Trump supporters. It's the Bernie Sanders people. It's my department chair. Certainly my brother. Probably my sister. The dynamics in my family. Uh, It's my minister, almost always. My minister. Uh, It's Eric Rhodes. Uh, (laughs) It's my children, Uh, it's where I live, it's my community, it's my city, it's the taxes. It's something, but it's something else. But remember the prophetic words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and then destroy them. But the dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? Paul's broad categories are broad enough to capture us all, and we are all in the trench. But also deep. It's not only broad enough to encompass, at least according to Paul, the entirety of the human race. It's also deep. That is, Paul is convinced that sin toxifies the deep tissue of every individual. At least from the perspective of this passage, we are toxified literally from head to toe. Notice Paul's language of body parts in this passage. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And then in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. With these body parts, Paul paints a Frankensteinian portrait of the human condition and says in the midst of these comments that our problem is both spiritual and social. Spiritual, and that has to do principally with God. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. You may recall that language. It's found earlier in the scripture in what's known as the wisdom literature. Uh, The book of Proverbs begins with the idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is to say, the first step of the wise life is to assume that you are small, incomplete, and limited in your awareness and knowledge compared to the vastness and ultimacy of God. And if you begin from that humble posture, 
you'll be a teachable spirit who is able to learn and grow and develop. And Paul says that we don't fear God. We fear a lot of other things, but we don't fear God. More than that, he talks about the social dynamics between people. Uh, Notice almost all of them have to do with speech. Did you notice that? He mentions throat, a throat, tongues, lips, mouths. Why would he spend so much time in describing the human dilemma talking about speech? Well, you may remember that Jesus Christ said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth mouth is ventilation for what is going on deep inside a person. And Paul seems to think that that inside has a rotten odor, like an open grave. This disturbing portrait represents a total eclipse of the heart, a total eclipse of the human being, in which there is no aspect of us that is untouched by sin. Every aspect of our lives, our minds, our hearts, our wills, our behavior, is infected in some real way with this demolishing, self-destructive, compulsive tendency. Hannah Arendt is, or was a Jewish polemicist from the previous century, who was fascinated by Romans 3 and Romans 7. She believed that Paul was uniquely pessimistic, but she actually found that very appealing. She wrote this about St. Paul. Paul thought that the will is impotent, not because of something outside us that prevents our wills from succeeding, but because our divided will enslaves itself. This is what uh, some in our tradition refer to as total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity, or put more clearly, comprehensive depravity. Total depravity does not mean, just for clarification's sake, that every person is as bad as every other person. Nor does it mean that every person is as bad as they can possibly be. Not everyone is Stalin. But what it's saying is that all of us have an inherited condition that we could, given the wrong times, wrong circumstances, and wrong desires, become rather monstrous. And that no aspect of us retains complete innocence. This is important whenever you're having a controversy with somebody that you love. Sometimes you think, if I reason with them, if I just sit down and give them a logical explanation of how their behavior is wrong and damaging, they'll be so persuaded by my data that they'll change. That assumes to some degree that the mind is rather unfallen, and if they just have unfiltered data, everything will resolve itself. Other people think, I need to appeal to their emotional side. If I can just make them cry, (laughs) you know, if we can have a lot of intentional conversations in which we can break down barriers and and they have a cathartic experience, everything will change. That can assume to some degree that our emotions are a little less dampened by sin. But it seems that sin is an equal opportunity abuser and comes to haunt our affect, our intellect, our abilities, and our actions. So Christians have a paradoxical view of human nature, because on the one hand, we affirm both a high anthropology, that we are made in the image and likeness of God, 
and a low anthropology, that we as image bearers have been shattered, so we reflect very imperfectly the divine image. And Christians also have a paradoxical view of human freedom. We disagree with Aristotle. We do not believe that the human condition is a blank slate and that we are in all ways free by nature. That is not biblical. According to Jesus, he who sins is a slave to sin. Addicts know this. They know the power of addiction, whether it comes through the, through the vehicle of hoarding or bad relationships or um, some sort of food-related addiction or binge drinking. Let me say that the alcoholic is not demonstrating his freedom when he decides to drink. At that point, the alcoholic is evidencing his slavery. He who sins is a slave to sin. Uh, within Christianity, freedom does not mean having your own will. Freedom means having your will conform to the will of God. That real freedom is pursuing and loving the beautiful, the good, the holy. And so this trench is broad. It encompasses the whole human race. It is deep that all of our inner tissue is affected and lastly, Paul believes that sin is not a matter of subjectivity, but objectivity. That it is objectively true, whether we see it or not. That is, the health of our spiritual lives is not measured by feeling. Because you've met people that are pathological, haven't you? Or a sociopath? Where they can ruin your life and go to sleep at night. We have to distinguish between actual or objective guilt and the subjective feeling of guilt. And Paul seems to think that this is our condition whether we sense it uh, or not. And how does he know this? Well, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, the law, of course, is the covenant given to Israel in which uh, are found beautiful moral uh, precepts. Uh, you know uh, many of them. You, know, you shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus do? He takes that same law and all the moral precepts in it and deepens it. So that it burrows down into our psychology, moves beyond action, and gets at motive. He said, sin does not begin when you kill someone. The darkness begins when you hate them. Sin doesn't begin when you cheat on your husband. It begins when you fantasize about cheating on your husband. It begins in the heart, in the subconscious. It begins in your fantasies. Um, for Paul, the law was given to help show us something that we would like to avoid. The standard uh, which measures our spiritual health, you see, is not self-conceived. Because even our self-conceived understanding of righteousness is flawed. Because left to our own devices, many of us would lower the market of righteousness 
to increase our own comfortability. But Paul believes that the eternal moral precepts of God have the ability to unveil us for what we are. For Paul, the moral law is good, but it has its limitations. It cannot justify us, that is, acquit us, declare us innocent, before the judge of all men and women. Instead, what the law does is diagnose the world. The world will be held accountable not based on our self-perceptions of holiness, but on God's righteousness revealed in the eternal law. But the law is a great diagnostician, not a great surgeon. Can't bring the healing that we so desperately need. Father Robert Capon puts it this way, if the law is a guide at all, it is a guide to perfecting one's virtues, not the reform of one's vices. It keeps non-gamblers from being foolish at the racetrack. It does not keep child abusers from beating children, compulsive liars from lying, or lechers from leching. For those in the front lines of their faults, it is just a lovely, cruel vision of a home they cannot get to. The law only makes sin exceedingly sinful and never saved anyone who really needed help. We need more than the most glittering moral precepts, good as they are. We need a full-fledged intervention. And so the human condition is broad, encompassing all of us, deep from our head to our toes, and objectively true. And we cannot climb out. The walls are too slick and too high. Now, I find this sermon thus far to be far too heavy. I want to go home and watch the never-ending story. And I am haunted by Romans chapter 3. And I would like to diminish it. I want to reinterpret it. I want to use other scriptural passages as lenses through which I view Romans 3 to nullify its power. I want to do that. Or I want to avoid Bob Duncan's penetrating question and those fearsome eyes under those massive brows. Ethan, are you a good person? I ask you the same question. Are you a good person? Are you righteous? Are you true? Are you holy? Do you keep your commitments? Are you responsible? Are you honest? Are you worthy? Have you proven yourself? Are you a good daughter? Are you a good son? Are you obedient? Have you worked this thing out? If you're like me, I I find those questions to be invasive and unsettling. And so we have various ways of distracting ourselves from actually answering the questions. Some people just embrace little distractions. I'll just have a life full of Instagram. Or we could get high. We could prostitute ourselves to our careers. We could develop yet another niche interest. Or we could withdraw. This occurs when I'm afraid of how you're going to hurt me or how I'm going to hurt you. And so it's better just to seclude myself. Or we can become cynics. You know, everyone is just a hypocrite anyway, especially those religious people, so who cares? We're born, we die, we can't ultimately know anything, so everything is, by nature, or by my decree, meaningless. Or we become hyperjudgmental. We ignore our pathologies and obsess over the faults of others because it's easier to mock than to confess. Or we try to manufacture willpower. You know, I'm going to try another regiment, get a new diet plan, try a new technique, 
even though I seem to be the same old person when they're done. Or we reinvent Jesus so that his message is more palatable and so that he doesn't challenge me or ask me to change anything. I have a friend who purchased a, uh, a small a plastic dashboard Jesus and attached it to his, uh, his car. And he, he made the comment once, this is great, because wherever I go, Jesus goes. What a telling theology in that, right? Uh, you know, I just imagine this dashboard Jesus in my own life, and he's, you know, he's stylishly dressed, and he has a colored scarf and a well-waxed beard, and uh, he's carrying a worn suitcase with a bumper sticker that says, coexist on it, made of various <laughs> religious symbols. And if you, if you bop Jesus on the head, he gives you some benign and non-invasive wisdom, you know? Just be true to yourself. <laughs> bop. If life hands you lemons, make lemonade. Bop. If you feel something strongly enough, it's probably good for you. Bop. Speak your own truth today. Bop. I affirm everything that you think, feel, or say. Uh, maybe you're like me. I want to dance. I want to dance around Romans 3. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want it to hurt me. I don't want it to come too close. But I invite us, with every fiber of my being, to take the hit and to guzzle the eye-popping moonshine that is the third chapter of Romans. Whenever Scripture challenges us, goes against our assumptions, I have a suggestion for you as your minister. Don't fight it. Because the passages we fight the hardest are the ones that can teach us the most. There is a reason we are fighting it. But God has a word he wants to speak to us through those sacred words. Because there are hidden benefits in accepting a terribly difficult truth. I'll mention three of these holy gifts, but there are many others. The first is a holy suspicion. Not a suspicion directed toward others, but directed toward ourselves. I think we ought to be far more suspicious of our own motives, our own actions, our own reactions, our own perceptions. Because they are, given our condition, likely flawed to some degree. Remember, Martin Luther said the Christian is simultaneously justified and still sinful, both at the same time. And therefore, our approach to many things, even within the spiritual life, will be flawed. And so to have a holy suspicion will benefit us by making us into humble, teachable people. Also, a holy empathy. A low and biblical anthropology can morph us into people who are marked by empathy. Because we understand that those who have abused and betrayed us, who have flayed our lives, who have troubled our sleep, who have caused us to have one too many drinks, they were not free when they were harming us. They were entrenched. They were enslaved. They were in bondage. Because he who sins is a slave to sin. That does not vindicate what they did and certainly uh, doesn't give us a reason to put up with it indefinitely. But it does give us a little bit of empathy toward people in our lives whom we would otherwise hate. And lastly, holy change. 
We do not get well in this life without a dual reckoning. The first reckoning is to deal with the dark diagnosis of Scripture. In order to be healed, we have to accept the diagnosis. Bishop Duncan's question, Ethan, are you a good person, haunted me, and in a moment, a variety of answers flashed before my spiritual eye. I thought of saying something like really biblical. I thought I would say, well, Bishop, I am just a sinner saved by grace. I mean, which is true, and it has a pious sound, but I felt like it was dodging. I also thought, well, I've had my problems, but we're all on a journey. Something really nebulous, and that doesn't ultimately mean anything. Um, I also thought I could lie and say, well, I'm getting better day by day, you know, turning into the man that I'm supposed to be. I mean, I could have said all sorts of things. But have you ever been in the company of somebody who, just by looking at you and asking you an honest question, gets past your defenses and brings down your deceit? I suppose I could have interpreted his question in a variety of ways, but in that moment, it seemed so serious that I couldn't lie to the bishop however much I wanted to. He said, are you a good person? And I said rather quietly, no, I'm not. And he was silent for an uncomfortable duration. <laughs> and then he nodded and said, good. Very good. <laughs> he said, you, you can't be a good priest without first knowing that you're a bad man. Change comes when honesty about our lives meets intervention. And we as Christians know that the intervention has come. We have an intervening deity who is not afraid of a trench, and not afraid of what we've done in the trench. The cross is firmly planted in the mud of total depravity. And in that place, Jesus says to us, I will save you from the trench, and I will never hate you, and I will not condemn you for what you did in that trench. But now we're leaving the trench. I'm taking you out of the trench. I want you to follow me out of the trench. And that's going to hurt you because part of you loves the trench because it's the only home that you've known. But we're leaving the trench. And so I am going to fill your minds with new ideas that you've never thought before. And I'm going to put new emotion in your chests. And we are going to figure this thing out together. But life will now never be the same. Sometimes you'll feel comforted, other times you'll feel disturbed, but we're leaving the trench behind. And when your body finally gives out, I will raise you from the dead and you will never see that damned trench again. Because it is not your home anymore. To that end, friends, I declare to you the full pardon and peace of God. His intervention at long last has come for us all. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.